I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. In today's episode, I am joined by David Wiss, where we discuss the research behind sugar and food addiction and debunk the myth that it's not a true addiction. We discuss how early life stress and trauma can impact your relationship with food. We talk about how inflammation can wreak havoc on your gut health and why we need to address health from a public policy lens. Most of us are overly aware of the connection between nutritional deficiencies and physical illness, but not enough people are talking about this connection between nutrition and mental illness. And nutrition can play a key role in the onset as well as the severity of things like depression, anxiety, and mood disorders. So I hope you guys enjoy today's conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. David, is it David Weiss? Thank you for asking. People have mispronounced my last name for so long. The last name is Wiss. Wiss. Okay. I was laying in bed last night thinking the first thing that I need to ask him is, am I pronouncing his last name correctly? I've been getting Wiss and Weiss my whole life. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that we can clear it up for people. So David, David, thank you for coming on. He is the founder of Nutrition in Recovery, which is a group practice in Los Angeles specializing in substance use disorders, eating disorders, body image, mental health, as well as general wellness. And I'm going to continue to brag about you a little bit. You have contributed to scientific literature, peer-reviewed journals on various topics of your expertise, and you're currently working on your PhD in public health from the University of California, Los Angeles. True story. That's awesome. Yeah, so tell you. me a little bit about that. I just want to hear kind of what you're working on and people can listen in on that as well. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I started the group practice in 2012 and took some dietetic interns and trained some other people to do what I do, which is essentially bring the message of nutrition to mental health settings, whether it be in groups at facilities or individually. And, um, you know, the impact that I was having at the individual level felt profound. I knew that the work that I was doing was significant as well as meaningful. However, I did quickly realize that it wasn't supported by policy. In other words, insurance doesn't cover nutrition services for a substance use disorder, for mental health in general. And instead of being frustrated, which I found myself very much so in my early career, I thought if if someone's going to take the lead and maybe uh, try to, you know, demonstrate through evidence that this is effective and essentially impact policy, it's got to be me. I'm not going to sit around and complain all day about nutrition services not being covered, uh, dietitians not being recognized enough. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to make a difference. So the public health PhD is an effort to take the work that I've been doing on the smaller scale and to uh, essentially scale it up 
so that uh, there be enough evidence to support the role of the dietitian in mental health settings, specifically substance use disorder. That's always been my kind of area of interest. But I'll tell you, in the last few years, I've really branched out to more mental health uh, broadly. So, you know, the link between nutrition and depression. There's a whole movement called nutritional psychiatry. Mm. Uh, and I, I attended the International Society of Nutritional Psychiatry Research Conference last year and presented with um, my colleagues about nutrition for substance use disorder. So public health is not about individuals. It's about populations. So it's been a tricky thing for me navigating the difference between being a clinician and working one-on-one with people and in small groups to essentially stopping to think about people and starting to think about groups, right? Um, so it's a, it's a whole different ball game when you're thinking about populations. And uh, so in public health, we use very large data sets, you know, usually looking at nationally representative samples and, um, it's been, it's been really challenging for me, to be perfectly honest. And I don't mean the workload. I don't mean the homework. I don't mean the papers. Those are all things that I love to do. The challenge has been having uh, new thought, having new ideas that aren't very easily understood by uh, colleagues and professors. Whenever you have new ideas, they make people uncomfortable. You know. So when I'm talking about the link between the gut and the brain, and I'm talking about using nutrition to help people recover from uh, addictions and eating disorders, et cetera. If it's not something people are familiar with, sometimes it it just creates a lot of um, uh, need for explanation and and roadblocks. So uh, I would be lying if I said this PhD thing has been easy. It has absolutely not been. There's been a lot of distress and a lot of detours and all that, but I've come to learn that that's how it's supposed to be. It's designed mm-hmm. to be like to put, to test you, to give you adversity, to make you rethink your things and go a different direction. And if it's too easy, they'll throw wrenches in it, you know? Mm. So uh, it's been, uh, it's, it's been great being split between private practice and academics. So you know, I spend an equal amount of time per week, you know, which is way more than I should seeing people and then, you know, literally at my computer writing manuscripts and uh, I've gotten the hang of it and I've written a few uh, papers that uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit today. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what a relevant topic to just kind of the, the overarching idea of talking about things that make us uncomfortable and kind of unraveling ideas or preconceived thoughts or notions that have maybe been ingrained in kind of us as humans that are making a lot of people uncomfortable right now. So I just want to say thank you personally to you for the work that you're doing because I'm very passionate about the work of mental health and its role with nutrition. And we need people like you. Um, I was reading last night the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and she talks about ask people why they're suffering and then move upstream. And that's where you make the change. And that just reminded me exactly of what you are doing with your public health uh, PhD. Thank you for that. We use the term upstream often. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. To think about the, uh, uh, the, the causes of things that are perhaps unseen or less likely to be considered, right? Like, for example, um, 
why do people in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods, you know, die 10 years earlier than people who live in more advantaged neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. Why is obesity higher in certain neighborhoods compared to others? And those questions force us to look at what are the psychosocial drivers, what are the environmental drivers, and what are the social determinants of health? So that term upstream uh, really brought a smile to my face because we use it a lot. That's wonderful. And I first came across your work when I first became a dietitian because my first contract position was for um, a drug and alcohol rehab where I still currently do part-time work. And like I said, it's an area that's very near and dear to my heart. But one of the many things that I've always really appreciated about your work is you have a very multi-causality lens rather than a reductionist approach. And that's something that I think you can bring to this conversation today, which is that it's, you know, there's not just one approach that we're taking from a nutrition perspective. We've got the emotional tied into it. And those are going to be a big focus of today's conversation. But I could just, I'm going to sit here and thank you all day for, for what you're doing. And it shouldn't be this hard to find information on nutrition and mental health or find dietitians in the field. And I hope that we can start to see more movement, uh, especially because of some of the things that you're doing. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think the, the mind always wants to look for cause and effect and to find answers and figure out why something went awry and, you know, reduce it to a single causal factor and then do something about it to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for the mind to consider the possibility that there's multiple vulnerability factors that are at play and that uh, uh, there's way more than meets the eye, right? Especially when people have nutrition challenges, maybe they have a gut issue and they're like, you know, it's that food. I ate that food. And they're sh- they were sure it was that food because they can recall that. And then there was a gut issue. It's so much easier to think that way than to also consider like, m- maybe there was, you know, stressors and you didn't get a lot of sleep and right. Your uh, GI tract was impacted by some environmental exposure. People mm. aren't really capable of considering the interplay and the cumulative effect of different uh, causal structures, right? Yeah. Or if someone weighs themselves often, which I discourage people to do, if they're weighing themselves all the time, they're like, I don't understand. Well, I ate, I ate this, but then I lost weight, you know, like, and, but then when I ate this, I gained weight. I'm like, that's why you shouldn't weigh yourself all the time because you're bringing in little tidbits of data that are misleading your mind towards, you know, different directions and failing to see the big picture, which is that there are other factors and it's imperfect and it's not perfect science and things fluctuate. And so people draw firm conclusions based on the reductionistic mindset and then are often confused why their conclusions don't extrapolate to other moments, et cetera. Mm. Yep. I, I can think of multiple different clients saying to me, well, the second I cut out bread, I lost weight last time. And it was, and that's got to be the only thing that they did that made it happen. Or, you know, it had nothing to do with the fact that you were, you know, getting your PhD running 10 miles a day and in a negative relationship. I'm sure that had nothing to do with it. I found a lot of people in my private practice have a euphoric recall of a, a, a prior period in their lives where perhaps they were happier or lived in a body that felt more like home and they're able to recall, like when I was, you know, like 
a year and a half ago when I felt really good, this is how I was eating. So therefore I need to be eating this way again in order to feel good again, unable to see the other contributing factors. And the fact is like a year and a half later, your physiology is different, right? Mm, And that nutrition is an ever evolving moving target, right? These are things that are difficult for people to grasp. Absolutely. Well, I think that let's start with the hot topic that I think most people are going to be interested to learn or hear about, because this topic I feel like has kind of ebbed and flowed into the wellness industry in general. And that is talking about sugar addiction, but also food addiction, because I want to kind of tie that in as well, uh, especially as it relates to gut health, because I know that we we inherently know that sugar in large amounts is not good for us, especially our gut health, that you know, highly processed foods and things like that are not going to be supportive of a healthy gut microbiome or an um, improved mental health or energy. And we're starting to see, I think, like a handful of studies on specifically the sugar's effects on the gut microbiome. I've seen like a 2018 study that they looked at dietary fructose, there was also a study in 2017 that they did looking at um, sugar in childhood and adolescence and how that can lead to alterations in the gut microbiome further down the road. But I, I'd love to hear your take on this topic. I know the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has their own stance, which I also want to say that I, I definitely I appreciate. And I love that they're saying we should not be labeling food foods as good or bad. And I think that that's appropriate when it comes to people who have disordered eating. But I also just worry about this message getting lost about the fact that sugar addiction is not real and would love to hear your professional opinion on this, especially given the fact that I know you have dove into some good research here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've written several peer-reviewed papers on sugar addiction and food addiction and I've certainly gotten my fair share of flack for being a pioneer in this field, uh, given that there's so much disagreement and so much contention there. Uh, I've identified a clear case of dichotomania in, in this topic, right? And I, I'm, I've made up that word, and I hope that it makes sense. But, you know, essentially what I've learned is that there are there are different philosophies that are prevalent in different circles and it lends itself to a group think where, you know, people that identify with that circle or that culture feel more comfortable kind of, you know, identifying with all the different commonalities, right? It's very similar to what we're seeing with politics, right? You're like, Mm. If you if you if you're with us, you think this way, and if you're with them, you think this way, right? And I've noticed that the classic eating disorder paradigm versus the sugar addiction, food addiction paradigm has created this really, you know, uh, unnecessary split. And I think it's because the classic eating disorder approach, which I use in my practice, is mostly driven by clinicians and mental health professionals, and it has a very inclusive non-diet, body positive, and very, um, you know, shame reducing, non-stigmatizing, harm reduction type of approach to, to food, which I think is, is, is very critical. 
But the flip side is that people look at food addiction as the complete opposite, right? That it's diet culture, that it's about weight loss, that it's about restriction, that it's about rules, that it's about being rigid, that it's stigmatizing. And I think that what's safe to say is that if you were to look on Instagram or if you were to do like a, a poll, you would find some support for that, right? In other words, there'd be a lot of 12-step groups that are like, you know, prescribing really rigid, you know, diets for quote unquote food addicts. There's a lot of lay public food addiction coaches that are doing extreme things, right? Like, you know, full-blown keto and things like that. And I'm not saying that that that's not going to work for anyone, but uh, it's certainly not the approach that I take. And so what I've really noticed here is that there's these now these extremes, these extreme camps, and they're warring with each other. Like people that are in the classic eating disorder paradigm are looking at the people that are identifying as with food addiction as, as being the cause of all the problem. Like you guys are promoting diet culture. You're spreading misinformation. You're, 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 you're putting people on rigid plans and then we have to treat them later for their, for their binge eating disorder. And then the food addiction camp is looking at the classic eating disorder paradigm and be like, there are no bad foods? How come when I eat this food, I binge my brains out, right? You're saying that I should be able to eat in moderation? Like, what do you work for the food industry? You know what I mean? And like, mm -hmm. the more split that occurs, the more dichotomania exists. And as a, as a clinician and a researcher, I sit in the middle and I'm scratching my head a little bit. And I'm like, this, this can't be right right? In other words, there's got to be a, a convergence in these different philosophies that is not completely contradictory. In other words, how do we use neuroscience to inform our understanding of eating disorders, right? And that's where the data, so those of us that actually do like scientific food addiction and write papers around it are very much not in, like on either one of those camps we're way more objective and thinking about it more scientifically. In other words, like I think about food addiction, not as a thing that promotes stigma, but the opposite. If someone is having difficulties regulating their food intake, um, perhaps they have metabolic issues, uh, et cetera. Um, it, it, it's, it's pretty clear that food addiction is saying that, it isn't just a matter of willpower or personal responsibility that this is truly an alteration in neurobiology that has impacted one's ability to successfully navigate the tricky terrain of food and that the food environment and the influence of the multinational greedy food companies has something to do with it. And the role of stress, trauma, and adversity is also impacting people's ability to, to eat well. So if, if someone's been exposed to sugar growing up in excess, right, they never had a high fiber diet, they never had home cooked meals, uh, they were uh, exposed to trauma growing up, and now they're 20 and their brain has learned that food is the only thing that really makes some of their old memories or intrusive thoughts go away. They don't have a lot of income. They're only able to afford certain things. They can't cook well. Food addiction isn't saying that this person needs to be on a rigid diet and try to lose as much weight as possible. 
food addiction is saying that there's a public health problem at play here mm. and that there's a larger picture going on that people are missing. In other words, this person is a product of their environment. Their relationship to food has evolved as a survival mechanism and the reward associated with highly palatable food has played an important role in you know, the illusion of keeping themselves safe. So when someone is involved in an addictive process, the brain perceives that experience uh, of the substance or the behavior as being something that's survival promoted, right? That if you think about the, the most challenging addictions are food and sex because we need them to survive. Therefore, the brain equates them with survival. If you get a dopamine surge, the brain thinks it's survival promoting. So people are eating very highly palatable food that seemingly promote survival, but are doing the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's just a, it's a tricky uh, time because it seems like there's more and more split between classic eating disorder paradigm and the food addiction paradigm. And as a clinician, as a researcher, what I'm hoping to do is to like look for similarities, look for how we can understand neurobiology to understand eating behavior, how we can um, reduce stigma, how we can help people get a greater understanding of the biological mechanisms, mechanisms at play in order to inform solutions that are gonna be not only sustainable, but that are gonna resonate with the, with the client or the patient themselves. I, I love, first of all, I want to respond to the dichotomania part of that because I, I remember at Fancy there was, it was Christy Harrison, who is the anti-diet author. Love her. She's great. Awesome. And then it was a, I think it was a doctor or a cardiologist. I don't remember who it was, but I would have loved to see you right in the middle of that because I agree. I think just being at that conference in that room during that debate, because it was a debate was just this this overwhelming sense of you're either over here or you're over here. That's right. There was none of this middle ground. And when you just kind of talked about it, it was almost a light bulb just went off in my head. What, you know, so it's it's unfortunate that we didn't have the opportunity to have someone like you have that point of view be placed in there because I know just from me being on social media and having colleagues who are in the eating disorder field and also having an approach very similar to yours I don't stand on one side or the other. I do believe that a healthy relationship with food is incredibly essential, and I preach it with my clients every day. But to your point, we cannot deny the bio biochemical things that are going on in somebody's brain. And even more interestingly, the point that you brought up about trauma and history and the person's environment and how that person might be more vulnerable to you know, highly palatable foods and things like that on a biochemical level. I was at that debate at Fancy. You were, and you know, I, and and, I'm, and as an eating disorder uh, professional, I'm sitting with all my eating disorder colleagues, and um, uh, I, I couldn't agree with uh, Christy, the 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 dietitian, more on on certain issues, right? Um, about body positivity and weight loss being harmful, and those are all things that I that I teach, but from a completely objective standpoint, as a scientist sitting there, you know, he was presenting data and she was like using emotions, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it was hard for me to feel like, uh, like, th like they were, it was almost like they were using totally different 
uh, approaches, right? And she was appealing to social justice and he was like appealing to medicalism, right? Which are totally different things. There was also a clear like gender split, right? She was like the more female centric approach and he was the kind of, you know, the alpha male doctor thing. And I just was sat there and I picked up on all of it and I observed and I stayed neutral. And I remember thinking, wow, I think there's a gray area here and I could bridge the gap. So thank you for that. Yeah. Now I want to talk about just for the listeners who are hearing, you know, if sugar is addictive, if someone is vulnerable to these highly palatable foods, um, does someone have to have an early life trauma to have this response? Maybe whether it's to sex, whether it's to food, whether it's to substance, you know, what, 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 role does that play the the trauma and the early life development to someone's vulnerability and let's say someone had they seemingly will say okay I grew up totally normal I don't, wouldn't consider myself having trauma is it still possible that the food industry has created my addiction almost to these highly palatable foods or sugar in general yeah it's such a great question I think the first uh, key point there is to really discern or define tr- trauma In other words, most people think trauma and think, right, the big T trauma, right, like this huge event, right, PTSD, this big thing that happened. And in doing so, kind of miss out all of the other little T traumas that that may have occurred. And it's really kind of suggesting that all people are exposed to adversity, okay? Like every human being is exposed to some level of adversity. Some people are more resilient to it. And other people are more susceptible to it having a lasting physiological uh, impact, per se. So in in mental health, there's a big understanding that there's PTSD and then there's CPTSD, which is complex trauma, which is more well-known and most people are less aware that that it exists. There's also just early life stress, right? To use that term is, you know, uh, sometimes more accessible for people. Like, I wouldn't say it was trauma, but it was stressful. Yes. Or in, you know, research, you see the term adversity because of the adverse childhood experiences tool, which was uh, part of a, a big study in 1998 in the Kaiser system in San Diego. And they essentially, you know, just captured a link between uh, multiple ACEs. So they had a, a tool that asked about household dysfunction, exposure to physical abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, etc. And the biggest finding was that those that were exposed to uh, four or more ACEs had, you know, uh, a sevenfold increase of, you know, being an alcoholic, tenfold increase in ever injecting illicit drugs. And those, those numbers were, you know, remarkable. So, you know, it, it started leading to, to these other questions, which are, um, why is that so? Is it related to the social dysfunction? In other words, if people are more likely to have been exposed to adversity, does it mean that they're also more likely to be in a gang or to you know, use counterculture or start using selling drugs at certain ages? Or does it mean that something actually happened to their physiology as a result of the adversity that made them more susceptible to uh, the, re- the rewarding effect of drugs? And I think we'll come, come back to that hopefully today. Um, but 
Uh, stress, trauma, and adversity are all words that I've kind of bundled up into one thing so that people don't feel this, like either you were traumatized or not. It's like all forms of challenges can set people up for um, a higher uh, uh, degree of quote unquote reward, which is a dopamine system when exposed to substances. Now, some people are exposed to drugs and alcohol and they find that to be their go-to, but other people veer away from that and uh, find food, right? So to answer your question, does someone need to be exposed? I think it's safe to say that everyone's exposed to either some form of stress, trauma, or adversity. Some people way more than others. And for some people, it becomes biologically embedded, whereas for other people, they have way more bounce back or resilience. But I would think it's safe to say that just even in a non-stressed, non-traumatized individual, just living in this world, if someone doesn't develop skills to, let's say, grocery shop, cook for themselves, clean up, and do all the things that a lot of us dietitians recommend, you're going to eat food that's been uh, basically uh, created for, for profit, right? So at a restaurant or at a you know, takeout or convenience food, uh, and, and so it can be that simple exposure to highly palatable foods day in and day out over the course of someone's lifespan can create what we would call food addiction. However, it's more likely to be mild rather than severe, okay. if that makes sense. That makes so sense. without the biological embedding and the other risk factors, it's less likely that someone will have that really severe food addiction, for example, if someone was exposed to sexual abuse growing up, they're more likely to be on the severe spectrum. But one comment I wanna make about sugar addiction, food addiction is that, in my opinion, the, the, the greatest detriment or the negative effect associated with becoming quote unquote dependent on highly palatable foods, I think is not so much about the harm caused by the sugar or by the refined grains or the in, uh, inflammatory oils, and, and I'm not diminishing the negative effects of those, but I really think the, the worst part is by uh, creating a regular intake of those foods, and I'll use the word dependence, it essentially crowds out all the other foods that someone should be eating, mm. right? So if someone's uh, quote unquote addicted to food, they're likely not eating lentils and broccoli and making fish and all of that, right? So I think that sugar addiction is best thought of as a conditioning of the brain to where it learns what's rewarding and what's good. It teaches the human the behavior of eating and basically kind of dictates what they should eat and that informs what they don't eat. And what they don't eat becomes the real problem because then they're not getting the fibers, the antioxidants, and all the anti-inflammatory things that would otherwise mediate and mitigate the uh, problems associated with highly palatable food. I love that response. And I would definitely agree with you. I, I, I'm, my brain kind of works this way, but it made me think of just one scenario with a specific food when I did a lot of research on the impact of 
grilling meat at high temperatures and the impact that the heterocycline amines, whatever, can have on health. And then you look at research studies that say, well, if you have that piece of steak with broccoli, it can actually mitigate the effects of what's going on in the body. And that's exactly what I think I would use as an example of, yes, okay, so these foods are highly palatable. And you just mentioned how we can be trained to gravitate towards them, but it's, it's actually what we're not consuming. It's that fiber, those whole unprocessed foods. And that's why I think we need to take this approach of what can we add to the diet in terms of fiber? And like you mentioned, whole grains, unprocessed grains, things like that, versus focusing on solely what we need to be restricting from the diet, because you're right. It's, I, I agree with you in the sense that it, that is not the sole reason why people are unhealthy. Yeah, if you think about like the young kid growing up exposed to fast food and, you know, sweetened beverages and convenience food, you know, by the time they're 20, their food preferences are very well established, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they have not eaten a lot of vegetables or they don't like beans. They don't like farro or, you know, things that are grainy or fibrous at all. And I think that that's going to dictate uh, their mental health over the life course, right? So people are in the trap of looking at nutrition as this 24 hour a day thing, right? It's like mm. they use apps to track calories and like 24 hours of nutrition. It's like nutrition affects us over the lifespan. And so someone that doesn't get exposed to at least 30 grams of fiber per day, and I'm a big fiber person, I even try to recommend people going closer to 40 through food, never from supplements, but through actual foods, uh, and, and, and they don't get a lot of fruits and vegetables. They're exposed to a ton of oxidative stress over the lifespan. And I think this will bring in your, our, our gut interest into the conversation, which is that, yes, you mentioned the growth of uh, microbes that m may be undesirable. Some people would call them pathogenic. So exposure to highly palatable foods it will certainly lead to an overgrowth of certain things and a loss of bacterial species that we want. So overall, the person will have less beneficial microbes. Um, that's definitely true. But I've, I've been following that research for, for many years and more recently gotten more curious about the role of oxidative stress uh, that can occur at the gut level, perhaps right at the intestinal barrier, which is certainly linked to a loss of beneficial microbes. So if people don't have good microbes from a, a, a substantial amount of fiber in their diet, the mucosal barrier can become compromised. And there's a, a, a possibility, I've seen data that on a fiber-free diet, the microbes will start eating at the intestinal lining, mm -hmm. right? And it'll lend itself to a low-grade systemic inflammation that occurs in the gut. Now, why this becomes important is because we've kind of gotten some really convincing data in the last few years that um, inflammation, inflammatory markers, for example, cytokines, which is a class of molecules, can cross the blood-brain barrier. So if our 20-year-old is on a chronic low-fiber diet, uh, eating mostly sugar, fast foods, over their lifespan, they're going to be developing higher levels of oxidative stress, and that can eventually really impact their mental health, right? Mm. So inflammation uh, that's not acute but chronic 
can accumulate over time. And for example, you know, uh, it can lend itself to higher levels of impulsivity, higher levels of anxiety, uh, more depression, more craving, the uh, loss of connectivity between, you know, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So someone is less goal-directed. They're less able to make decisions that are best in their long-term health and more focused on what things feel good right now, right? I call it crises management, Mm. right? And sometimes the crises doesn't even exist. The brain perceives a crisis because it's out of balance, right? So when a brain is imbalanced, perhaps from poor nutrition or from trauma, et cetera, it's going to find the behaviors that will seemingly reduce this quote unquote immediate crises and do so at the expense of long-term health. So one of my main messages is to get people to thinking, thinking about nutrition as something that affects us over the lifespan rather than this kind of 24 hour a day deal. Which, which I think is, is not, it's hard for a lot of people because we have, what is it? The YOLO, you only live once, which is, I feel like people's reason to say, well, let's not think long-term. Let's just kind of live for the day. And I'd agree that that is, it's going to be hurting us long-term if we're not thinking of long-term, you know, people will say, I don't care what my bones are going to be like. I'm not worried about heart disease. I'm, you know, 20, 30 years old. And, and we really do need to be like taking that lens and pulling outside. But you mentioned in the beginning how it's really hard for us as humans. And, and I can definitely say I'm vulnerable to this as well when it comes to several things in life is it's, it can be hard to pull yourself outside of that narrow-minded thinking and really see the big picture. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think the threat of heart disease and bone issues later on in life doesn't motivate people. No. But exactly. I try to get, yeah, it doesn't. And, and I, I would never even try to pitch that to someone as a, no. as a reason to change their, their, their eating. But I, I would get people to consider the possibility about their uh, uh, mental health, right? Quality mm-hmm. of your thoughts. Not necessarily the risk of dementia or other neurodegenerative diseases later, but just your ability to be sharp-minded and to be able to focus through your life course. And that's something that isn't easily quantified. So people have a hard time thinking about it, right? If someone has had poor diet and they, you know, drink regularly and in their forties, they're like, they're no longer interested in reading, right? Like how could someone know how it could have been different if they, if they weren't drinking and they were exercising and eating fruits and vegetables, how their mind would be working in their forties. Maybe instead of watching TV all day, they were reading books and writing articles or something of that nature. Uh, and, and so it's hard to get people to think about these things because it's, it's, there's no comparison group. There's no control group, right? It's hard to do that kind of research. So nutrition for mental health is definitely the future. We're going to show some things in the next couple of decades that are going to really wake people up to the fact that nutrition is not just about medical outcomes, but it's really about mental health outcomes. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many people I see in my private practice who are in their 20s and they're on, you know, depression, anxiety medications, and they're saying, oh, oh, I had no idea that that could play a role, you know, omega-3s or magnesium or nutrient deficiencies in general, or even just solely underfueling, not getting enough calories, especially amongst females and how that can play into your mental health. So, we could do a whole episode on that. Honestly, it's, 
if you want to come back, I'd love to have so you. Yeah. <laughs> um, psychiatry is such a cool term. If people are looking for uh, search terms, by the way, I, I try to tell people this, you can set up on Google, like search terms where you get an alert, right? Mm. So I have it set up on a lot of scholarly kind of databases where if there's something that I'm interested in, uh, I set up an alert. So I'm going to get an email every week to where if it was ever an article was published about it, uh, I'll get a, I'll get a message. So I'll be able to look at it and you can do that for articles in, you know, the, 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 the web in general, it's a fun tool, right? So like I'm interested, I became really interested in inflammatory markers. So there's a new term inflammasome, Right. And so I set up, I set up a, a search term for inflammasome every week. I'm looking through and just looking for new ideas. And I'm like slowly learning about this topic in more detail because it, it's really popular in lots of different disciplines, not so much, you know, nutrition or mental health. But yeah, I recommend people being active in your learning rather than passive. I love that. I didn't even know that you could do that. That's really cool. So let's segue into the trauma and disordered eating and the potential mechanisms, because I think that might be a good place to kind of move away from, from the sugar and food addiction. I feel like we've got a good, good topic covered there. Yeah. Well, you know, to be honest, the major proposed mechanism in the work that I'm doing to link early life adversity and uh, both binge eating and BMI over the lifespan is dun, 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 food addiction, right? <laughs> so uh, I recently published a systematic review and meta-analysis uh, linking ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences, and obesity. Uh, there's been uh, several studies which have made the association. And in a meta-analysis, we pooled all of the studies to get a very stable estimate. And our uh, research shows that exposure to multiple ACEs before the first 18 years of life is associated with a 46% increase in the odds of obesity over the lifespan. So it's very obvious that um, uh, there's a link, okay? It's a statistically significant link. In mainstay psychoanalytic thought, there's always been this kind of belief system that people that were exposed to sexual abuse had a uh, kind of unconscious, subconscious, or possibly even deliberate uh, pathway toward overeating as a way of uh, basically gaining weight to make themselves less physically attractive and less vulnerable to future victimization. Mm -hmm. And I heard about that a lot over the years. I heard I had clients in my office say that they were um, told by their therapist that you know, because there was abuse, uh, physical sexual abuse early on, that they had developed eating patterns to 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 stave that off. And I remember thinking that's that's really insightful. That's really um, you know intelligent and very you know psychoanalytic in some ways. But then after I heard like the fourth person say it to me, I asked them point blank. I was like, Do you think that that's true? And she looked at me and she was like, No, I actually don't. And I was like, interesting. So I started to wonder, what is it uh, that could possibly explain this really strong association? And we've talked already about inflammation and how that can, you know, affect 
the brain. It turns out that trauma and adversity does increase inflammation over the lifespan. So PTSD has systemic implications, right? It does increase uh, the body's quote unquote allostatic load, which is a basically uh, an index of different markers. Um, if they're high, you get a point, And then the more points you have, the more load you have. Uh, but as a uh, person interested in neuroscience and addiction, I think where I've focused more recently is in how these early life adversities and traumas, and by the way, they can happen when you're 18, 19, 20, and still become biologically embedded. In epidemiology, we look at the critical periods or the sensitive periods. So how, like how does trauma at age you know, five to seven uh, differ from trauma at age 13 to 15, right? Those are things that we're not going to get into, but those are important questions. Anyways, uh, it, it turns out that the um, uh, adversities and traumas or stressors, however you want to call them, can make someone's reward responsiveness different, okay? So there's been about five studies in the last two years that have showed People that were chronically exposed to psychosocial stress have a dampened striatal dopamine response. So people have an alteration in the way that their brain processes reward and uh, also assigns salience to certain experiences. So salience is a word that we use in addiction. It basically means the brain's uh, assignment of value to something. So if something does something quote unquote, rewarding or, or meaningful, it becomes memorable. That's how the dopamine system works. If something is highly stimulating, the brain learns it. So if it learns it to be something that quote unquote works, uh, it'll assign salience to it. So if someone is exposed to early life sexual abuse and they start binge eating, you know, in their teens, because, you know, whatever negative affect has lingered, they have uh, memories or maybe perhaps it's completely encoded in their brain and they don't remember it at all. That's also common with trauma. Uh, the food's doing something for them that's more rewarding than it's doing for their, uh, 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 for their you know, counterpart per se. Uh, so, so yes, I'm very much interested in how uh, stress, trauma, and adversity affect dopamine and how dopamine essentially affects other consumption behaviors. So mm. not just food, but drugs, alcohol. I'm also interested in caffeine, nicotine, and any other substance that activates reward. If someone's reward circuitry is altered, uh, it's gonna affect their consumption behavior of, of all, all substances. And the main point in doing some of this work and this research is really to help people uh, feel better understood and less stigmatized. So instead of, oh, you're doing this to, you know, prevent, you know, this from happening, or, you know, you're doing this because you've given up on yourself. It's like, no, you've been neurobiologically altered. And as a result, these are the behaviors that occurred. Therefore, we need a more uh, targeted and more specific solution, right? There mm. aren't any known interventions for people that have uh, adversity that have eating challenges. So I see a future in trauma-informed eating disorder treatment. And right? that was that was going to be my question was, so what is the action step here and what would be the outcome to some, okay. Yeah, I think that, I think that you know, um, having specific eating disorder treatment to those that have been traumatized um, would really benefit, you know, people that, that are not successful 
in the more classic eating disorder paradigm. So for example, if everyone's in, a, in an eating disorder setting and they're all getting the message of intuitive eating, moderation, and inclusivity, and then there's a couple people that are struggling with that. And they're saying, this isn't working for me. Uh, the, the common assumption that they get is, well, you haven't tried it long enough and you still have a diet mentality. But what if, just what if their physiology was different? So they were a different phenotype mm. than the other people in the eating disorder treatment. What if the way that they processed rewards was differently? What if their amygdala was different? They processed threats differently. What if their hippocampus was different? They processed memories differently. Then what does it mean for treatment, right? Mm. And I think those are the important questions that we'll hopefully be able to answer in future years. It's really just bringing biology back into the picture, yeah. right? Bringing the biology back into the overall picture. Yeah, it makes me think, you know, obviously with anorexia nervosa, there's the concern of, you know, the person's underfueled and, and whatnot. But when we bring into, you know, bulimia and binge eating disorder, I, I have a lot of clients that do come to me and say, who have previously been in treatment and just say, it's this overarching experience where I don't feel like it was individualized enough to me. And, and I listen to that and I sympathize because I, I just feel like there is definitely that missing link. So I'm, I'm excited to hopefully see that unfold. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I've been a little critical of eating disorder treatment over the years. Cause I I've been able to help a lot of people in an outpatient setting with, with without going to treatment or perhaps after treatment. So I built a confidence around my, my point of view but I also want to be sympathetic to the needs of the treatment providers. Like it really is hard to truly individualize treatment if you're running a, an operation, right? If you have something like a treatment center, you do have to scale it at some point. Cause mm -hmm. I've worked in eating disorder treatment where we individualized everything, right? Like some people are on a inclusive plan. Some people are on less exposure. Some people eating dessert four times a week. Some people are eating dessert zero. Some people get the sauce and some people don't. And it would just created so much strain on the chef mm -hmm. and on the, on the, on the, the dietitian. And eventually it was, it led to burnout. And so everyone was like, you know what, just give everyone the same food. You know what I mean? And, yeah. it, and, and so I learned from experience that it's easy to be critical, but it's, it's also important to remember that these are challenging things to carry out. Mm -hmm. And so I always like to add that point in. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about these things all day, but when it comes down to implementation, it's there's more to it. I think it's good to address that, absolutely. Well, I mean, I usually think of three takeaways for the listener of things that they can do for kind of how they can either... I don't know, help someone who is struggling with something along the lines of anything we've talked about um, or just general takeaways if the person themselves has been struggling. Maybe they feel like, oh my gosh, I'm addicted to food. Maybe they have an eating disorder and whatnot. Obviously, we're not on here providing medical advice, but looking for like three main takeaways. Um, I know for myself, I see a lot of benefit when my clients are not just working with me as the dietitian, but they're also working alongside on the emotional side of things with a therapist, someone who really specializes, especially in the area of which they, whether it's trauma, eating disorders, PTSD, whatnot. But I think I would say if that was my takeaway, what would you add to that? Yeah, thank you for that. I guess a couple maybe important summarizing ideas are that uh, well, 
for starters, sugar addiction and, and food addiction is real. Okay. It's not, uh, it's not up for debate anymore. The science is incredibly robust. There's hundreds of studies. The thing that's less clear is the solution, right? That's what's up for debate. The problem is not debatable. The problem is well described. The solution is less clear. So something that I'd like to get people to think about in the sugar addiction, food addiction conversation is maybe it's not solely about what you're eating. Maybe it's also about what you're not eating. Mm. And that bringing some of those foods that have been uh, uh, edged out through the kind of dependence on highly palatable foods, bringing those in might actually be a part of the solution in an effort to rewire the brain. Second point is that uh, eating disorders are heterogeneous. They are, there isn't a single phenotype in that when we overly emphasize uh, eating disorders as being a category, a single category, I think it leaves a lot of people confused and that future of eating disorder treatment will better discern between the different types and the different biology in order to best help people that are struggling with food and body image issues. And then maybe point number three is that uh, gut health is a really popular topic, but we really have only scratched the surface. Mm. A lot of the uh, initial findings that have come out have been shown to be not so true. Like we are just barely getting a really good understanding of the role of these microbes. A lot of the hypotheses that have come out haven't stood the test of time. So we have so much to, to go in terms of understanding, like what are the best probiotics for people? How do we reduce inflammation at the intestinal barrier? And I think that, you know, this is a really uh, hot area that will get more and more interest and really, really paint the picture that links nutrition to mental health. Mm. I like that last one, especially because we've got a shelf full of probiotics at the store that's saying, this is the one you should take if you're female. This is the one you should take if you have liver disease. And we we have nothing to back that up. We have nothing. So yes, gut health is important, but like you mentioned, the research is, is, is just being, being emerged here. So now the most important question of the episode, what is your favorite childhood memory related to food? So yeah, I'll be transparent. I'll be honest. Uh, uh, I learned how to make craft macaroni and cheese when I, when I was uh, two. My mom caught me uh, trying to make it on my own before my third birthday, trying to pour it in. So that was my favorite food growing up, the blue box, uh, referred to in the food industry as liquid gold. <laughs> and uh, I think I must have been eight years old. And my mom asked me, what did I want for my birthday? And I said that I wanted a feast. So I had seen like on cartoons or in movies when they had like the big long table, the big long table of like, you know, the, the, the meats and the pot. It was like, it seemed like the most glorious thing that, you know, someone could have if they were uh, living in, in, in yesteryear. And so I wanted a full table full of food and I, I wanted a feast at, uh, at my birthday. And did you so get that it? for a little vulnerability? I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you better believe that macaroni and cheese was a primary. <laughs> oh, um, that's amazing. I love that. That's awesome. My, Thank you. My brain is not hijacked by uh, food the way it was when I was eight. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank can... goodness for science and for recovery. Mm, amen. <laughs> um, so David has 
incredible resources. He's got videos, which I've spent a lot of time watching. He's got publications, blog posts. He has a wonderful newsletter, which you should subscribe to www.nutritioninrecovery.com. His Instagram, David W-I-S-S. And you should follow him. You should follow his Instagram lives. I'll correct you on my IG. It's David Awis. There's a middle initial A in there, but I'm sure it'll come up. And the newsletter comes up after you're on the website for around 20 seconds. So if you visit Nutrition Recovery, the invite pops up after around 20 seconds. My Instagram lives on Friday, 4 p.m. Pacific are awesome. And if you uh, follow me, you can join those in. They're interactive. And on this week, on Friday, I will be discussing body image. So if you miss it, you can always find it somewhere else online. Awesome. Well, David, thank you again for the amazing work that you're doing, especially in this space during this time. You are a pioneer in the industry, and I am so grateful for you. So thank you for taking the time to come on and share your knowledge with my listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. All right. I'll talk to you later. Ciao. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me, go to nutritionrewired.com to book a discovery call. Whether my client's goals are to lose weight, improve their digestion, or improve their physical activity performance, my favorite thing is to hear them say that they feel better mentally. Because when my clients feel better mentally, they're going to be more motivated to continue to make other changes and reach their goals. And when you feel better from a mental health perspective, you can show up in life better. So if you enjoyed today's episode and you think somebody else might benefit, don't forget to share the health, share the episode, leave a comment or review. And thank you again for tuning in.